0: This coming Friday, Netflix releases the second season of The Crown, and I know that some of you are fans, and you may be waiting, and some of you by next Sunday morning will have seen all 10 episodes of the second season. Kathy and I have a little difficulty finding shows and movies that we agree on. Um, We have different tastes, but this is one that we've been able to find uh, some commonality in. I like history, she likes the royals, so there's something in it for each one of us. Now one source of drama early in season one is the abdication of King Edward VIII, the son, or actually the uncle of Queen Elizabeth, the current queen. Edward was the oldest son of King George V, um, and he became king upon his father's death in January of 1936. To put it mildly, Edward was not particularly suited to be king. His private secretary had little respect for him. He once wrote of him that for some hereditary or psychological reason, his normal mental development stopped dead when he reached adolescence. His own father, George V, was so disappointed in his failure to settle down when he became a young man and disgusted by the affairs that he had with married women that he was reluctant to see him inherit the uh, the crown. After I'm dead, he told one person close to him, that boy will be the ruin of himself in 12 months. And as it turned out, he was right. Within months of becoming king, Edward caused a constitutional crisis when he let it be known that he intended to marry Wallace Simpson, an American divorcee who'd had two previous husbands. In fact, she was still married to the second of those. According to the conventions of the time, marriage of a royal to a divorcee was unacceptable, so he quickly found his plan opposed by the Church of England, by the Prime minister, by the entire cabinet, um, British uh, ministers. And that created a crisis. But he continued behind the scenes to fight and eventually reached the conclusion that he needed to abdicate, and made plans to marry Mrs. Simpson. In the end, he only reigned 326 days, one of the shortest reigns of any British monarch, and was succeeded by his younger brother, King George VI, whom some of you may be familiar with because of the movie, The King's Speech. After his abdication, he was named the Duke of Windsor. He married his lover later that year when her divorce came through. And he spent much of the rest of his life living in France. Rarely did he make an appearance on the soil of Britain. In May 1972, he died in Paris. And that evening, the British public watched a program that reviewed the main events of his life. Many watched for the first time an interview that had been conducted in 1970, in which the Duke answered questions about his upbringing, about his brief reign, and his eventual abdication. In the interview, he made a comment about his childhood. He said that his father had been a strict disciplinarian and that when he had done something wrong as a child, his father would admonish him saying, my dear boy, you must always remember who you are. My dear boy, you must always remember who you are. You know, it's my conviction that Jesus says the same thing to us every day. Remember who you are. And if we remember who we are, it can't help but affect the way we live our lives. It reminds us that there are some things that are simply not fitting for a Christian. And there are appropriate things and inappropriate things. There are some behaviors that are worthy of a follower of Jesus and others that are unworthy. And remembering who we are helps guide us in the right direction. Now, we're a little over halfway through the book of Ephesians. It's a letter that Paul wrote to Christians and churches throughout a region of the world, some of whom he knew, but many of whom he did not know. And he wrote about some important advice about what it means to be a Christian. And I just want to acknowledge up front that I know that not all of you have chosen to follow Jesus. Some of you are skeptical. Others of you are in a process of exploring. So when you heard the text for today, you may have blanched. This is a part of Ephesians that's challenging. In fact, it's challenging even for those who follow, have chosen to follow Christ. In fact, maybe most of all, it's challenging for those of us that have frozen, chosen to follow Jesus because we are the ones that Paul's talking to. In it, he lays out a way of life that not everyone today buys into. So I get that. But I also sincerely believe that there is great wisdom here. And my hope is that even those who may feel like you're on the outside looking in may find that what Paul says is helpful, even if it is challenging. Now, before we start, let me just remind us of where we've been. About six weeks ago, Devin talked about the very first chapter of the book of Ephesians. And at the beginning, Paul reminds them of what Jesus has done for them, how his love motivated him to die on their behalf, and then, in a completely unexpected way, he rose from the dead. And Paul boldly says that because of what Jesus did for us, not through our own effort, we can have a relationship with God. Now, he moves on in the next few chapters to talk about some other challenging things. For example, he says to this multi-ethnic church made up of people who had Jewish heritages as well as Gentile heritages, that they need to learn to live together in Christ as one unified multi-ethnic family. And then as Amy began to share with us last week, he talked about some important changes that they needed to make in their lives This week's text continues that theme. We're talking about how new life in Christ should lead to a new lifestyle. Now, to do that, um, let's look first at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, you can. It's on page 1780, although the words that we'll talk about will also be on the screen. You've heard it read, so for the most part today, I'm going to paraphrase what Paul says. He first starts by talking about how we're to be imitators of God. How? He says, well, you need to live a life of love. And then he defines love in what I think is a surprising way because we often think of love in sentimental and emotional uh, terms. But Paul defines love sacrificially. He says, if you want to understand the kind of love I'm talking about, look at Jesus who gave himself for you and so in turn you ought to give yourself for others. Now we like the idea of love. That's a prevalent theme in our culture. But what we're thinking about is loving the lovely, the loving, and the lovable. But the kind of love that Jesus demonstrates, Paul says, is loving the unlovable, the unloving and the unlovely. It's the sort of love, he says, that pleases God. And then Paul challenges us. Verse 3, he says, don't let it be said that you're sexually immoral, indecent or greedy. Full stop. That means it's absolutely unacceptable for someone who's a follower of Christ. When we read something like this, we are reminded that we live in an oversexed age. And yet they did as well. Sexual misconduct was as prevalent in Paul's day as it is today. And Paul takes it head on. He doesn't equivocate. He doesn't adjust what he, know, what he says God expects of us just because of a cultural trend. But he calls them to a way of life that honors God. Historians tell us that chastity was a value that Christians introduced into the ancient world. Many of then as now regard um, sexual immorality so lightly as to consider it not a sin at all. In elite circles in Paul's day, it was expected that a man would have a mistress, and powerful men took advantage of women with few consequences. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? At first, Paul's mention of greed here, I think, seems out of place. Yeah, you can say sexual immorality, impurity, those things go together, but what's this deal with greed? Well... A couple of different options for what Paul's getting at. First, and I think this is one of the two reasons he mentions it here, is that probably the two most persistent things that destroy us are sexual immorality and greed. But I think Paul's also pointing here to a particular kind of greed, and that is the kind of greed that causes someone to covet the body of another person for purely selfish gratification. In our day, that can be done physically or through a computer screen. But the point Paul's making is that sexual intercourse outside of the God ordained context of marriage between a man and a woman is sin. And it's especially wrong when it comes outside of the context of a relationship, when it's simply about gratifying the desires of the flesh. Now, Paul adds to this not only is this something that can be lived out physically, it's also something that involves the way we use our words as well. So he says, don't swear, don't spout nonsense, don't tell crude jokes. In other words, no locker room talk. And the idea of boys will be boys is, an, is just simply lame. Real men use respectful language when talking about women. So no exceptions. Paul says instead you're to be thankful people. Now I know that thankfulness doesn't seem at first like an obvious um, a substitute for vulgarity. But what he's trying to do here is turn them from self-centered individuals to a God-centered life. Sexual impurity, greed, those things, he says, reflect selfishness. Thankfulness is exactly the opposite. It's an acknowledgement of God's generosity with us. But I think there's one more reason that Paul points us to gratitude. I think Christians get a bad rap when it comes to talking about sex. Most people think that Christians are down on sex Asking people to wait until marriage seems unreasonable to many, and faithfulness in marriage seems impossible to others. But that's not really the way the Bible talks about sex at all. And sure, there are boundaries, but I don't believe the Bible has a warped view of sex. We're neither to be ashamed nor afraid of it. And if you're not sure, just take the Bible that's in front of you, turn to page 1001, and read the Song of Songs, although maybe not right now. We're to have a high and holy view of sex as a gift to be enjoyed in the right time and right place, something to be celebrated, not something to be degraded by actions or words. Now, at this point, Paul switches and shifts to probably the most challenging words in this section. Let me just paraphrase what he says here. He says, be sure of this. If immorality, indecency, and greed are deeply embedded in your way of life, you'll never be part of the kingdom of God. Now you want to say, wow, that's hardcore, isn't it? The first thing I want to say here is that what Paul is talking about is not a single indiscretion, a single act of sin. If that's so, then we're all sunk. What he's saying here comes in the context of what he said earlier, the idea that his message of grace, that it's not through the good things that we do, but it's through a relationship with Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross, that we have a relationship with God. But what he's getting at here is the idea of habitual sin, Those who continue to flaunt the commands of God without any remorse. What he says here is hard to hear because if we call ourselves Christians, there needs to be evidence that our lives are changing. If there's no obedience or even the desire for obedience, then we need to ask some hard questions. If we're not remorseful when we trip up, then we need to reexamine our faith. Now, I'm not saying our lives need to be perfect. Paul's not saying that either. It's impossible. But there needs to be some evidence that we're giving it a go that we're trying by faith to obey God and the things that he's asking of us. And even if we try, we know we're going to do it imperfectly, but our imperfections point us back to Christ and the cross, the place where we can find forgiveness, the forgiveness we so desperately need. So when we sin, we're to confess it and move on. But also know that when we know Jesus, we should start to see changes in our lives and in our hearts. Again, we're not going to be perfect, and we may even describe it as stumbling forward. But if we are not at least doing a little bit, if we're not at least seeing some change and stumbling forward, we ought to re-examine where we are with God. I know what some of you may be thinking. That really sounds harsh. Isn't God a God of love? Now you're saying God's a God of wrath and judgment. I wish I had more time to spend on it, but let me quickly try to provide what I think is a balanced perspective, a perspective that fits with the entire sweep of the biblical story. The Bible tells us that God is both loving and just, and we like the loving part, but generally aren't so comfortable with the justice part of God, except when we're the ones that are wronged. Is God forgiving? Yes, he is. Except that anytime someone does something horrible, murder, rape, child abuse, theft, whatever it is, we demand justice. Just look at the news in the last year or so, particularly since early April. When what we've learned is that powerful men have abused their positions of authority to take advantage of women. This sort of thing has been going on forever. But now, finally, victims are finding the courage to speak out and others are taking them seriously and acting, at least in some spheres of life. I know that the idea that we deserve judgment for our sins doesn't preach well in polite society, but go ask the victims of a serious crime or sexual abuse and you might get a different response. And that even goes, even if you might be the perpetrator, if you've done something that you know was wrong, really wrong, deep inside, you know you shouldn't get a free pass. That's why the idea that God absorbed on him, the judgment that we rightly deserved in order that we might find forgiveness is so transformative. I watch people who are burdened by guilt and shame find hope and healing in the good news that Jesus died for them, that they might find forgiveness and eternal life. Now, one only slightly less popular idea is the idea that we ought to obey God's commands, the commands that some see as capricious or maybe unreasonable. Now, first, let me say that I think there is great wisdom in the guidelines, both what God asks us to do and what he prohibits. God really does know what he's doing, and his ways are best. Secondly, let me just say that sin is not all it's cracked up to be. You've heard it said, uh, everything I like is either illegally immoral, or fattening, and we laugh. Um, but I also know from experience that there's much pain that comes from doing whatever the heck we want. I agree with those who've said we are not punished for our sins, but by our sins. We're not punished for our sins, but by our sins. Paul also talks here about idolatry, which sounds a little strange to us because we think of totem poles and statues. But what he's talking about is when we put anything at the center of our lives other than God, when anything replaces God at the center of life, and that can be sex, it could be money, it could be sex, it could be almost anything that to us becomes more important than a relationship with God. And he says, watch those things. In the end, the message here is that we need to take sin seriously. Again, we're not saved by what we do, but if we're truly grateful for what God has done in our lives, we will want to do what pleases him if we truly believe that Jesus is the wisest, most loving person who ever lived, that he offers us grace and peace and hope and freedom and healing, the healing that we need to flourish to become the people God has created to be, then we will trust him. We'll surrender our lives to him. We will be open to change. Encountering Jesus means that we're all going to change, and the ways in which we change may be very different because whatever we struggle with may be specific to us, pride, anger, greed, Lost envy. We're all going to have different challenges in our lives. But an encounter with Jesus will change us and help us to move toward greater humility and generosity and purity and love. Now, before we move on, let me just clarify one little phrase that Paul drops in here at the end, almost as a throwaway comment, when he says, don't be partners with them. First, let me just clarify here that Paul is not saying that we should avoid contact with anyone who believes or does something that's different from what we may believe. Uh, Otherwise, as he says in 1 Corinthians 5, we would have to leave the world. But what he is saying is that we shouldn't participate with others in the things that we know are wrong. In other words, it's involvement, not association, that is the issue. Now, there's a section that follows this in verses 8 to 14 that we don't have time to go into in depth. Let me just make a couple of comments here because he uses a metaphor. He compares light and dark as as in a contrast to describe the way of God as the way of light. The way of light's found in all that is good and right and true. And it's these things that please God. And at the, toward the end of that section, in verse 13, Paul makes a comment that the, the light exposes everything. And then in verses 15 and 16, he says, those who have seen the light will live wisely. In other words, he's saying, be careful how you live. Don't live thoughtlessly or like fools. Instead, be wise. Make the most of your time. Take advantage of the opportunities that you're given because there is evil all around us. So find out what God's will is and do it. It's practical stuff. Everything worth doing requires care and thought, whether it's our jobs or our families or our hobbies. So he's saying be sensible and wise. Understand and see the traps and avoid foolish mistakes and recognize the opportunity that you have to do the right thing. And don't waste your life on trivial things. Time is precious, so use it well. And then, toward the end here, Paul adds one other idea that should characterize the life of a Christian, and he does so by comparing two things. And the things are being drunk and being filled with the Spirit. Now, what he's going to say here is that in one way, these two things are alike, and in one way, they're different. First, just a little bit of background, and that is that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a gift that a Christian gets upon coming to faith. It's a one-time experience, and yet it's also something that needs to be accessed on a daily basis, be renewed daily. Paul and others in the Bible tell us that the influence of the Spirit in our lives is something that we can welcome or we can suppress. And Paul's telling them here to make certain that they are filled with the Spirit. And to make the point, he says, first of all, don't get drunk. Now, when someone gets drunk, what we say is that they are under the influence Pharmacologically, we know that alcohol depresses the body's ability to exercise self-control. It makes us stupid, not wise. It affects our motor skills, our ability to process information. It takes away everything that makes us our best and brightest. The Holy Spirit does exactly the opposite. Being filled with the Spirit stimulates every faculty of life, our mind, intellect, heart, and will. To be drunk means to lose control. To be filled with the Spirit is to be self-controlled. So alcohol turns us into something that is less than ourselves. The Holy Spirit makes us the best version of ourselves. Now, in all of this, let me just say that I know what Paul says is challenging, and I know that not all of you will be on board with what we're talking about today. What he does is he first challenges us to follow God's example and live a pure life, avoiding things that can trip us up. His challenge then is to live a wise life, illuminated by the light. And then he encourages us to be filled with the Spirit and live a life of discipline and self-control. Now earlier we talked about this relationship between faith and works. And how uh, the idea is that we can have a relationship with God through Jesus, not through what we do. And yet here and in other places in the Bible, the biblical writers tell us that how we live is really important. So there's a tension there. And it was a tension that was talked about at at length in the early Christian church. There were some on one side of the equation who went so far as to argue that because God's grace was so wide as to cover every sin, that we might as well keep on sinning. In fact, the greater the sin, the greater God's grace. But the early Christian church leaders said, no, grace is not only a gift, it implies responsibility. Yes, grace covers every sin, but the very fact of his grace should inspire us to live lives consistent with what Jesus taught, how he lived, what he asks of us. In fact, it's disrespectful to Jesus, the one who died for us, to take sin lightly. The biblical writers describe God's expectations for us, but sometimes we pretend that we don't understand because we know that the moment we admit that we understand is the moment that we're obliged to obey. Now, I hope it doesn't sound like to you that I'm scolding, but I do want to challenge us to think about obedience and how it affects our own lives and also the lives of others around us. The world is watching those of us who call ourselves Christians to see if we live up to the values that we say we believe. And to be candid, sometimes I don't think the church does. I think sometimes we take sin not too seriously. That's left a credibility gap between what we claim to be and what we appear to be. At times, we treat Biblical standards like speed limits. We think they're optional as long as we can get away with them. And when we get a ticket, we're more upset that we got caught than remorseful about what we did in the first place. To gain traction with the culture around us, I think we need to stop turning a blind eye to sin and live lives of purity. Holiness requires intentionality, it's not a condition we drift into. We also need to remember to care. Not just that we're treated fairly, but to advocate for those who are treated unfairly. That means to care deeply, to love others the way God loves us, extending grace to all, particularly the vulnerable, for the poor, for children, for immigrants, for women. And we need to share with others the good news of Jesus, that Jesus died despite our failings, that we might find peace and meaning and purpose and guidance and strength and hope in a relationship with him. And to serve others sacrificially, doing ordinary things with great love giving generously of our time and our skills and our money. And we need to remember who we are. The world's watching. And so we should do all we do and live a way of life that is a stepping stone to God, not a stumbling block. Let's pray. Father, we've uh, read some challenging words today, words that um, are hard to hear in some ways, that make us think deeply about our lives and our purpose. But Father, we also understand that you know best what is good for our lives and good for others as well. Father, give us the courage to live pure lives. Help us to submit ourselves to you even when we don't understand all of what you have for us. Help us to live lives illuminated by your light in our lives to be wise. And also, may we open ourselves each day to be filled with your spirit that we might find power to live the life that you have asked us to live. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.